Welcome to the final time here on Project Action on Podcast One. Yes, as you saw from last week's episode, and those of you that have been following the show for quite a while probably knew the days are numbered. Well, the industry has shifted, um, and uh, you know my business has shifted, and uh, we're still definitely in the podcast game right here on Podcast One. But uh, Project Action has run its course, and I just want to thank all of you for tuning in these past five, six, seven years. It's been an amazing run with Project Action. Um, but uh, yeah, things have uh, moved on, and uh, we're doing a lot of what we're doing on Project Action over on the Jim Beaver Show, which is formerly the Down and Dirty Radio Show. Yes, I know when you've been doing this 11, 12 years, names change, things like that, formats change, but still podcasting. If you've been listening to this show, same type of interviews, long form, get it over there on the General Tire Jim Beaver Show. Go over to... Uh, uh, Apple Podcast, subscribe. We're on Spotify, uh, Spotify, uh, also Podcast One right here. So it is uh, the Jim Beaver Show, General Tire Jim Beaver Show. Brittany Cardone is, uh, I guess, the formal name of it. But uh, just honestly, wanted to thank you guys. We've had some amazing, I don't want to say industry-defining interviews, but some pretty amazing interviews over the run of this show. I mean, everything from musicians to Hollywood celebrities, pro wrestlers, uh, race car drivers, musicians. I mean, it's been absolutely insane. And, uh, yeah, I just want to thank you guys because this show uh, was a side project that turned into, uh, at one point, at the peak of it, was bigger than my main show. So, uh, yes, it has been great. It has been fun. But we are going to continue on the party uh, over there at the Jim Beaver Show. Uh, multiple drops a week into that feed. Uh, we've got some of the back archives, probably going to be airing some of the back archives of Project Action right there on that feed as well. A lot of those listeners probably haven't ever even heard some of these shows. So uh, definitely a lot of it, uh, a lot of it is going to be going down. But that's the feed you want to subscribe to from here on out. It has uh, been one hell of a ride here on Project Action. Big thanks to Podcast One, uh, all of our amazing supporters. And I got to give a big shout out to our friends at Geico. Geico episode number two jumped in episode number two and they have been with us nonstop 100% all the way through and they're going to continue on the program over there with the Jim Beaver show so big thank you to Geico for their longtime support of the show and uh, yeah you listeners man it's been great if you want to catch up with me and Brittany it's at Jim Beaver 15 at B Cardone 15 uh, once again the Jim Beaver show uh, is where you want to go and subscribe uh, because after this episode, this feed is no longer going to be updated, but it will reside in the archives of the internet forever. But uh, yes, go check out our new show. And uh, man, we are uh, we are going to end this the way we started it. The two interviews that launched this show were Ken Block in episode number one, Jason Ellis in episode number two, and that launched this show to uh crazy i mean we were one of the top ranked shows in all of itunes one week uh because of these two guests and uh you know last week we heard jason ellis and now we're going to end this show the way we started it with a head hoonigan himself ken block and one of my favorite interviews in the history of my career i have ever done so ken block going down right here on the finale of project action Thank you for listening. Enjoy the show, and we will see you over on The Jim Beaver Show from here on out. Identifying. Let's go. Let's go. You're about to experience action like you've never heard it before. Action sports, celebrities, badasses, and massive interviews. All coming to you from the Polaris Razor Studio. 
This is Jim Beaver's Project Action, exclusively on Podcast One. Welcome to Project Action on Podcast One. I'm your host, Jim Beaver, here, and uh, I got to tell you, we have got one of the best of best of episodes, literally, probably... In my 10-year radio and podcast career, one of the interviews that is probably my most favorite. This is up on my Mount Rushmore of interviews that I have done. We are re-airing it today in the show. And I know a lot of you missed it. This one goes back to 2016 with my good friend Ken Block. He opens up on uh, you know his career motorsports marketing you know how his mind works and how he sees things before uh, they occur in the business world like it's just an amazing interview I have interviewed Ken probably no shortage of a dozen times, and this absolutely is a standout interview of those. And, um, yeah, I thought, you know what? It's been a while since this thing has seen the light of day. Let's re-air this one and uh, let you guys enjoy it. So Ken Block today throwing it back to 2016 with a best of Project Action, and I think you guys are really, really going to enjoy this one. Please head over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts. It's now known. Also Spotify. But smash that subscribe button, and please leave a rating when you do it. Those uh, stars really help us out one through five we'll tell you how to rate us but please take uh i mean it takes like half a second to click one through five stars please so if you're listening now go over to apple Podcasts, do that support us if you want to give me a follow on social media it's at jim beaver 15 got some big stuff cranking vegas torino coming up uh in about a week so uh yeah you'll be able to follow along on my journey and my racing and media career and uh, a whole lot more and who knows if you let me know you're a listener of the show i'll probably follow you back yep that's right so, uh, yeah, big show today. I know we've also got a feature at the end that we're going to air with uh, betonline.ag. we got a ton of content to get to. Uh, this, is, uh, this is Project Action at its best. Before we get to that, though, um, you know, we got a couple of amazing partners here on the show. And I thought, uh, you know what? It's time for me to tell you a little bit about them. And, you know, sports, they keep coming back. And so does your chance to bet on them with our exclusive wagering partner, betonline.ag. Major League Baseball announced in full swing. NBA has also begun. There's no shortage of ways to get Get in on the action. I think NHL playoffs are starting this weekend as well. Bet Online has all the odds, futures, and props for you to bet on. And as sports start to return, Bet Online has sat down with Eddie George from the NFL, Robert Horry, seven time NBA champ, and Harold Reynolds from Major League Baseball to get their opinions on what it will be like playing without fans and what they have called the pandemic. Visit betonline.ag today to check out all the odds and up to date sports news. Don't forget to, bet, to sign up and take advantage of all the welcome back sports bonuses that they offer. Bet online, your online wagering experts. And don't forget that promo code is podcast one. Bet online. Use it and take advantage of the best bonuses in the business. Sign up for a free account. And make sure and use that promo code podcast one to get that sign up bonus. And, uh, you know, Bet Online, they've been with us for a while. We've also got uh, another company that's been with us for quite a while, our good friends at Geico. And you know right now, Geico's offering an extra 15% on car, motorcycle, and RV policies. That's 15% on top of the money Geico could already save you. So what are you waiting for? Your dog can make you breakfast in bed? Well... Belgian waffles and fresh fruit sounds nice, but uh, you know what? That's probably not going to happen. But at least there's never a better time to switch to Geico. Save 15% when you switch by October 7th. Visit Geico.com and learn more. 
And car waxes have come a really long way. Last year, Meguiar's introduced the Hybrid Ceramic Spray Wax. Bright blue bottle, advanced SiO2 hybrid technology delivers ceramic wax protection and durability beyond traditional waxes. Incredibly easy to use. Simply wash your car, spray on Meguiar's Hybrid Ceramic Spray Wax, and then just rinse right off. No rubbing, no curing, no buffing, no mess. Provides extreme water beating action, and it's been flying off the shelves. And this year, knowing some prefer a more traditional style application, Meguiar's has launched their liquid version, Meguiar's Hybrid Ceramic Liquid. Liquid wax, long-lasting ceramic protection, and an easy-to-use wax seals the paint for a long-lasting protection against the elements, delivers extreme water-beating action, and it's easy to use, applying like a traditional liquid wax does, with no wax residue. Meguiar's also launched a hybrid ceramic spray detailer in between for boosted maintenance. Yeah, it removes contaminants like dust, fingerprints, and those evil bird droppings, and it boosts gloss and enhances protection. Also includes SiO2 hybrid ceramic protection. Achieve a just-wash look by gently removing fresh contaminants between regular washes before they have a chance to bond with the paint. Now Meguiar's has ceramic solutions for everyone. For incredible water-beating protection and durability beyond traditional waxes, it's ceramic made easy. It's Meguiar's. And with that, I think it's time to roll into uh, this amazing throwback interview that I did with my good friend back in 2016, Mr. Ken Block. Welcome to Fandemic 2020, presented by Bet Online. I'm your host, Bram Weinstein. We have an amazing panel of guests today. You see Harold Reynolds, who played infield in Major League Baseball for a number of years. You can see him every day on the MLB Network these days in his prestigious broadcasting career. Eddie George won the Heisman Trophy back in the 1990s, one of the best running backs in Houston Oilers' Tennessee Titans history. And Robert Ory is one of the most clutch basketball players in NBA playoff history. A number of different championships with three different teams over 16 years. Hi to all of you. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me also. Um, all right, let's 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 switch over to fans, and let's talk about what that looks like, what that feels like. Um, Eddie, you played at Ohio State, so you played at one of the most iconic, legendary venues that there is in American sport. You played in the NFL as well. So let's start with you here. The idea of playing football games without fans, that, that feels like what to you? So I, I know what it feels like, and it's, it's, not, it's not fun. It's, um, you need uh, the energy to feed off of, uh, your, 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 whether you're home or your home video. You need the fans to support you when you're, when you're down. You're trying to figure out how to uh, force through adversity as a team and and you need the fan support. And also when you're on the road, you know, the, the opposing teams feed off that same type of energy. So the fans are very much a part of sports like anything else. They are definitely play, – they play a role in it. And that's the whole point is the give and take. That's why they have home field advantage or home court advantage or home field advantage. It's a definitely a, a, a feel to it. So what you're going to see is it's going to feel like, like a spring practice, if you will. It's going to feel like a – uh, a glorified scrimmage is not going to have very much meaning without the fans. It's going to be a different feel. Robert, for you, I mean, for your league, they're going right into the playoffs and there's no fans. Um, what was your experience like having fans in the stands for playoff games? And what does it mean to you to not have them in what is the biggest moments of the season for the NBA? Well, for me, I, I, I fed on fans energy and, and I also love going into uh, different, uh, like the visiting teams' arena and shutting them up because it was nothing more satisfying than shutting them up and, and you know having that that thrill. 
but I, I, I think sometimes uh, people don't understand how much as athletes we need fans. We love fans, and we appreciate them greatly. I know a lot of times we can act like we don't by not signing an autograph, but we really appreciate fans because they give us that energy in the fourth quarter, or the, and they let us and, and they, they excite us to get over that mountaintop. I, I think about when we played um, Portland in Game Seven of Western Conference Finals in Game Four of a game seven in the fourth quarter, you know, we down 20 points, but we got those fans behind us to, to, to come through and make them nervous. You know, that helped us. That's why you play for home court advantages for these moments like this, when you need those fans behind you to get you over the top. So it, it's hard to play without fans, but I will say this without fans, you're going to see who is the best. You can see who has the heart and, and the mindset to get over the top because they don't have the fans to push them or give them that extra mile. So now the true, the true talented people are going to come through at the end. I got to tell you though, I mean, Harold, I mean, as a fan, that is one of the unintended good consequences here of all of this. That we get to hear the things that we've always wanted to hear that we weren't sure was ever really going on. <laughs> hey, Eddie, Eddie, I'm curious with, uh, in football, so, so much of the vocabulary is shared from team to team. Yeah. Like your audible and plays and stuff like that. How will that play? It's that's that's a great point because you know the um, the Patriots they got in trouble for getting their audibles. They're getting their their signals. They're knowing when they're checking. They're getting so that's that's going to be interesting to, to because to the, the have the, the the crowd noise to mute that out helps, and you can't pick up on things. But when you can pick up like uh, you know. Uh, check with me, you know, going right, you know, uh, Wrangler and, and 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 lefty, whatever it is. I mean, you can you can pick up on those things. So I think the NFL, in in, in terms of game planning, week to week, they're going to have to change up their vocabulary to communicate what they want from play to play. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that happens. From a health perspective. We've established you guys to some level would miss the fans and their presence, but but what concern do you have about people being in the stands in general? Well, I think if you want to get through the season, uh, it's going to have to be without fans because you just you, you can't risk a fan coming down shaking somebody's hand. Your natural reaction: somebody says hi to you, you want to reach out your hand, right? Fist pump, whatever. What happens if a player contacts COVID through a fan? You're going to contract contact all the fans, and you're going to shut the team down. I just think it's difficult enough to keep the team clean and healthy and not to involve fans. And I know that's not what everybody wants to hear, but I think that's where we're at right now. And like I said, this is ever-evolving. Who knows, by the time we get to September, it might totally be different. But I think for now, as we're starting up and trying to just get players on the field, I find it difficult to think they're not going to interact with fans. It's just a natural thing to do. So I think that complicates the problem. That's just my thought. Eddie, what about you? You said you fed off the fans. You liked having them there. Um, with the public health and your personal health, if you were playing at risk, how do you feel about the idea of fans being in the stands? I, I think it can be done. I think if you can find the right capacity and you can begin to uh, kind of – tarp off different sections of the stadium because not every um, even in normal time, not every stadium is going to be full anyway. So it's only certain markets, certain places. And I think teams that are at full capacity, 
uh, on the average, need to have those plans out. I think if fans come to come in with masks on, they provide hand sanitizers. They're they're laid out a certain protocol that there are no uh, player fan interactions. There are no autographs. Uh, lay all the rules out on the table. I think it can be done uh, appropriately. I think if you can somehow um, manage the concessions, you know, six feet distance, uh, making sure people go in one way uh, all the time, that they're not all over the place. If you can provide that in, in, in terms of a stadium environment and that experience, it can be done. Um, I don't think the players can necessarily attract COVID. I'm not an expert. I'm not a doctor. Through fan interaction, just by them being there, uh, it's more on the field that from other players they can get it. Well, in terms of having fans in the stands, it can be done if it's done appropriately, responsibly, and it has to be well thought out. And they have to check, be able to check the temperatures of people, do a, um, a uh, uh, testing and uh, screening prior to that. I think it can be done. Would you play? Would you play? Would I have played? Yeah, I probably would have. You know, I was single throughout most of my career. I mean, through all my career, I was single. I didn't get married till after uh, baseball. So, yeah, I probably would have played. Um, I, I can understand guys that have the challenges, though, uh, because of the fact that, well, you look at Mike Trout. You know, his wife is expecting their first child in August. And I remember being in spring training before the shutdown, talking to Mike, and he was so ecstatic about being home and asking me, what was it like in the delivery room when your kids were born? And he was all enthusiastic about all that. That's something you think about forever, particularly with the first one. And so now, knowing that the date was going to be in August, he was like, I'll probably miss a couple games, but I'll be back. Then the pandemic hits, and he's thrown into this whole decision of what is he going to do? And I'll throw this at you guys real quick. The challenge for these players is not taking care of yourself. It's all your teammates. Everybody's in it. So I don't know what they're doing when they leave and who they're around and everything else. I think that's what presents even more of a challenge with contact testing, where if someone all of a sudden outside of your sphere has had contact with somebody, now you all of a sudden you got to get quarantined. And so those are the challenges. And I know that's what Mike Trout is, is really struggling with. So that said, and that long answer, being single, with no kids all through my career, yeah, I'd have probably played. But had I had family, like Robert was talking about, it presents a different challenge. Robert, would you have played if you were still playing right now? Would you play? I probably would have because, you know, it, you know it also depends on where I am at my career. You know, from like five years in, 10 years in, or like it was like 16 years at the end of my career, I wouldn't do it just because I know I'm older and I know my wife had heart issues and I got a young kid at home. So I, I probably wouldn't play. And plus, I've made enough money that I didn't have to play. So it, it that makes a big difference on where you are. My career was established. So, you know, it, it's hard to say, you know, and plus I had seven championships. So you know, I'm not trying to win another one, you know, but. And, and it's hard to say, man, because you love the game of basketball. You love your sport and you want to get out there and show your craft and do your craft at the best of its ability. And, and, and it would be one of those things. And you have to really sit down with your family and discuss it and see what they want you to do. And it would be it, it would be hard. But for me and I know me I, and my wife, I would have said, no, I, I'm not playing because, um, you know, I've I played enough and, I, and my life 
and my family life is more important than getting some, you know, playing a basketball game. All right, let's end on um, a big picture question. Optimistically, all of the leagues you're going to play, all of them are going to crown a champion. Harold, I want you to go last because baseball is such a unique position with how they're structuring their schedule and, and all of that stuff this year. But let's start with the NBA since they would be the first to literally crown a champion if they can play. Um, is there an asterisk, Robert, for whoever wins <laughs> this thing this year? Um, you know, it's, I, I played in the – 99, 1999 season where, you know, we want to put an asterisk by the San Antonio Spurs season because it was, a, it was a lockout. I think anytime you win a championship is a great accomplishment, so there shouldn't be an asterisk. It's not like you, like half the guys didn't try to compete and play, but everybody's out there competing. Everybody has the same advantage that you have. I'm not one of these guys that believe in the asterisk. I think if you get out there and complete, compete and you do what you're supposed to do to try to win the championship, you win that championship. You play hard as an individual. You did your thing. I know a lot of people, I guarantee you, if your team doesn't win it, you're going to say it. And if your you're team right. does win it, he goes like, oh, it's not an extra season. We, we compete right. like everybody else. So I think, I think when you say asterisk, that's just, that's just bad because everybody had the same opportunity to go out and compete and win the championship. And you should have put yourself in a position to have the best advantage possible to win a championship. All right, big thank you to our panel today. Harold Reynolds, who you can, of course, see on the MLB Network, played a number of years in the majors. Eddie George, a Heisman Trophy winner, of course, one of the greatest running backs in Houston Oilers, Tennessee Titans history, and Robert Ory, one of the most clutch shooters in the history of the NBA, a winner of seven championships and has the rest of them so jealous because he's got seven rings. <laughs> thank you guys so much for joining us today. And to the fans out there, thank you for joining us for Pandemic 2020, brought to you by Bet Online. All right, I uh, got my good friend Ken Block here, and uh, I don't know where, where are we talking at? You're Ibiza, right? Yeah, I am on the lovely Spanish island of Ibiza. I'm up in a nice villa overlooking some beautiful coastline in the city of San Antonio, and watching the uh, the sun go down. It's a pretty nice little vacation spot between two of our races here. One. We had a week and a half ago in France, and then this weekend we have Barcelona. So, really good to be able to have my family over here and enjoy some time between races. Yeah, you're you're like full blown expatriate status this year, almost, man. How how has that been running uh, World Rallycross? I mean, it's definitely a change of pace from uh, you know the stuff you've done the past couple of years with uh, with GRC. Yeah, it's it's actually been really amazing, and and I actually have spent a ton of time in Europe. You know, when I was racing the WRC. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, but that's when my kids were a lot younger, and now they're starting to get older, so it's a little bit uh, easier in some ways and harder in others, but uh, it's been really fun. Luckily, my wife really likes to travel and handles all the travel and, and planning and all that stuff really well, so we've been really enjoying it. We've been kind of all over the place uh this year because we've had races in norway and england and germany uh and canada so it's it's been kind of crazy popping all over the place but really been enjoying it enjoying the the race series the race series you know the fia world rally cross series is just put together exceptionally well great level of competition and yeah just been having a, a blast this year 
Yeah. I, I mean, you know, and I look at the, the list, and obviously, you know, you've got your teammate, Backrude, yourself. I mean, but guys like Petter and, and Sebastian Loeb and, uh, you know, and then even, you know, hardcore rally guys. I mean, you've got Teamer and, uh, you know, and, and Toppy. And I'm just looking down the list, and, I mean, it, it's, man, I mean, it, talk about some stout competition. I mean, you, you know, the past couple of years in Red Bull GRC, um, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you were the front runner. You were the guy to beat. I mean, you know, you look at lap times, and, and I don't care about the point standings. I mean, you were that guy. You were the one with the target on your back, you know. And, and uh, World Rallycross, man, it's the competition level is just insane. I mean, you're up there fighting for podiums, but there's a bunch of other guys, you know, right there breathing down your neck also. Uh, yeah, I mean, and, and that's a big reason why I went to switch over to World Rallycross is the fact that, you know, some of the biggest names in the sport uh, really are there with, you know, factory-backed uh, cars, you know, from uh, several other manufacturers. And, you know, you've got two former WRC champions there with Loeb and Petter Salberg. So it really is uh, a well-put-together series. The, the weekends of racing are, are really good and really entertaining. And the competition level is just super high. So... I'm really stoked to be racing there. You know, I've, I've struggled this year because we have a brand new car, you know, but uh, I have the, the talent and the desire to be at the top. You know, I came here with my Fiesta a couple of years ago and, and got a third and a fourth. Uh, but this year I've, I've only gotten one third out of, I think, eight events. So it's a, it's a very high level of competition and uh, it's it's fun to compete at that level, but for me this year, it's been a bit of a struggle just because we're developing a brand new race car, but we are getting there. So uh, it, 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 it's uh, going really well in, in that side of things. Yeah. How, how has it been for you this year? I mean, uh, I was looking back and, you know, I've followed your career for, I don't know how long now. And uh, I think, you know, I mean, last time I think you had a teammate was maybe ATCO back at like WRC Mexico a few years back or something like that. I mean, how was it this year for you full time to take on uh, to take on a, a teammate? I mean, how's the adjustment been with with the team there and the crew and everything else adding a second car into the mix? Uh, it's been amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Over the years of Finnegan Racing, we've only had uh, some guys on just for one off events like Ryan Turk last year for Jim kind of grid driving the Escort. And, yeah, Chris Atkinson at WRC Mexico. You know, so we've enjoyed having those people as part of the team. But until this year, we've never had, you know, a goal to go out and have uh, a team effort to try and win, you know, a title in one of these series. But especially uh, in FIA World Rallycross, you have the driver's title, but you also have the team title up for up for grabs too. So it's nice to be able to race for two different FIA world titles. So when we set out to set this deal up, uh, you know, we really wanted to uh, be able to go out and do the best job we possibly could, you know, as a team with a factory deal and be able to um, uh, do it, you know, uh, with the, the you know the the best setup possible as a as a team to try and get both championships, so it's really cool. I'm stoked to have Andreas as a teammate. Um, he's a really good dude, really talented. He, he meshes really well with uh, you know all my uh, with all my guys. So it's been you know a really really uh, good first part of this year, and we're looking forward to 
many years uh, going on to, you know, have a have a team running like this. Yeah. Well, and the thing about Backroot is, is uh, you know, I've got to know him the past couple of years and done some interviews and stuff like that and had a few drinks with him at, a couple of times. And I got to tell you, he's a personality. I know people here in the States, you know, they, they might not know the name well, but in Europe, man, the guy has a legit fan following. I mean, I you know, the whole term Backroot Blue is, uh, it's insane. I mean, this guy, uh, you know, it wasn't like you pulled a no-name out of nowhere. I mean, this, he's legit talent, but he's got quite the fan following over there in Europe. Yeah, he's a, you know, the, the great thing that I, I really like about Andreas is uh, he's a really good kid, uh, comes from a great family, uh, and he's worked really hard to be where he's at. Um, you know, started in karting, came up in the rally cross, you know, did the two-wheel drive championships, and he worked really hard at home to find sponsors to support him. And not only did he work with those sponsors and local people, but he really developed relationships with these people and built a following of fans from his local town of Bergen, Norway. And then that's just kind of grown and grown. So I'm really proud of the dude because he's really worked hard from like the, the base grassroots part of motorsport to build up now to a factory back driver. It's extremely, extremely cool. And I'm stoked to be able to, in my own team, be able to reward someone like this uh, because it's great to be able to, you know, support somebody that's, that's put themselves through all that to get to this highest level. Yeah. Well, and talking about you and, and, you know, your, your background, I mean, as far as, you know, your brand and that, I mean, I look at a few guys that, that probably in the U S could make that successful transition to world rallycross and, and bring your, you know, you you know, there's a lot of guys that are well known in the states, but not on a global scale. And I mean, I, I seriously, I think on two fingers, I would say you and Travis Pastrana are maybe the two guys that that could really pull off a, a full, you know, effort in World Rallycross. I mean, from a from a brand standpoint, I mean, you know, how has that been for the Ken Block brand and Hoonigan and and Monster Energy? I mean, actually going to Europe and being able to take this thing globally, you know. Uh, well, I, I guess for me, it, it genuinely is a dream come true. I mean. When I started with Ford back in 2010, one of the big reasons why I partnered with them is that they were a brand that wanted me to go and do as many things globally. You know, the the funding was coming from the States uh, for the sponsorship, but they wanted me to go out and do as much as I could uh, in Europe, in Asia, uh, you know, so that we could kind of take what we're doing and and really continue to make it a, a, a global thing. So, you know, that was really quite successful with not only racing World Rallycross, but then, you know, doing all the videos and everything that we did because it really was genuinely a global reach. Um, And now, as we continue to move forward, you know, going back and racing, you know, the FIA World Rallycross and going to the factory level sponsorship with them and with a teammate, a much bigger team, uh, it's been really genuinely you know one of the coolest experiences for me that i think is possible because in the past like when i raced wrc well i was just a a sponsored american driver that was you know paying m sport to run a car there i wasn't on the factory team i didn't have the same equipment as the factory drivers wasn't getting all the testing and development and all that sort of stuff you know but now i'm the factory team my team's the, the number one team in rallycross to Ford and we're, you know, 
Scott Ford performance, you know, designing, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the car, you know, from the aero to the engine to, uh, you know, general vehicle dynamics and doing all the analytics of testing and all that sort of stuff. So, man, it's, uh, it's really, like I said, it's dream come true type stuff. Yeah. Uh, I'm really, I'm really genuinely one of the luckiest race car drivers in the world that, you know, I've got an amazing race program that's completely factory backed. And on top of that, I have a, an amazing set of sponsors that want me to go out and have fun and do fun and creative things with uh, my race cars and projects around the race cars. And, and the fact that I get to do, you know, a Jim Connor video or two a year, which is, you know, just extremely fun with the car. It's a, it's one of those careers. It's, Seriously, like if you could write down on a piece of paper, what do you, what do you want as a dream career as a race car driver? Well, I'm I'm kind of living it, so I'm super appreciative of that, and super appreciative that I have a global fan base, and that people like and appreciate, you know, what I do around the world with, you know, making the videos and racing these amazing cars, and and the fans follow me through the ups and the downs, and it's something that I. Really, genuinely appreciate. Yeah, is there ever a point too? Because I mean, I know you personally on a personal level, but you know, I know you've you've been the guy that you know in the past. I mean, you were you were behind the scenes, and you know, and I want to get into kind of the formation of, of DC and things like that. But you you were the guy behind the scenes, you know, uh, you know, kind of pulling the strings. I mean, was there a part a point where it was it was weird for you to make that transition from the guy behind the scenes pulling the strings and and building these brand you know these brand name athletes to now all of a sudden, hey, I'm I'm the brand name athlete here. Like, how was that? transition for you because it had to have been weird to, to kind of flip roles you know uh yeah no that was uh that was genuinely weird at one point uh yeah because when i you know i did dc uh i was i uh, you know damon and i both were behind the scenes kind of guys and and we really liked that we liked having the athletes be the center stage of the brand and and it wasn't really towards the end that we kind of got a bit better known as the guys behind the brand but really we always you know went on like the tours to japan and europe and and we let the athletes be the front of the brand and you know we stuck stood behind them and wanted to help and and push the marketing and the brand side of things but it was never about us so yeah when i started racing in 2005 i was you know, basically teammates with Travis Pastrana and uh, raced with him for, you know, four or five years and really had a good time with that. But, I mean, Travis has always just been a huge name and I was just the, the guy that was there with him, you know. <laughs> so we'd, we'd go to autograph signings and, of course, there's like 14-year-old girls fainting in line waiting to, you know, <laughs> get an autograph with Travis Pastrana and I'm just the other dude like, at the table. You know, so it was kind of funny to to go from, you know, the the guy that was just racing with Travis Pastrana to then kind of getting more and more known as, you know, the Jim Connor series got bigger and bigger and, you know, X Games became, you know, a bigger thing with our competitions and then Rallycross and all that. So to the point where my name became bigger and bigger and then kids would ask Travis, if Travis knew me, which was really funny. So, <laughs> so it, it was, you know, it's, it's been a interesting and crazy transition. And, 
actually a bit difficult in ways for me because I'm actually a fairly uh, reserved person when it comes to like people I don't know. So, uh, uh, you know, I'm trying to then change that to have to be more social with lots of people I don't know because now there's people approaching me all the time at events and all that sort of stuff. And I have to act a way that's kind of unnatural to me uh, in a way. So it did take, you know, a, a considerable amount of time for me to, to be comfortable with that and, and to be able to, you know, handle all the autograph signings and interviews and appearances and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Well, and, and knowing you personally, no, it did for sure, you know, and, and knowing you personally, it's, uh, I mean, it, it, you know, I, I see that, you know, and I, you know, and I know you kind of behind the scenes and I've, one thing I've always respected and I know that it's something I've tried to do with my family, but you've really tried to shroud your family kind of away from that. You know, it's, Hey, I'm the guy that's out there. You know, you're, you're not one posting pictures of your wife and your kids and it's not because you don't love them. It's just, it's kind of, you've got your bubble and, and, you know, and, and you want to keep them in there. And I, I totally get that because I'm kind of the same way. And, um, I, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for you for doing that. Cause a lot of guys are out there, they're throwing their kids and, and, you know, and you've kind of been, you know, one of those, if eventually your kids kind of move into that role where they want to be a public figure, that's fine, but you're not going to push them out there into that, you know? Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, the family to me is, uh, I, I really love having an amazing family, but for me that that's my private life. That's what I do away from the racing and public life. You know, so I, I want to keep that to ourselves. Uh, you know, and also another thing, too, is, uh, you know, as an athlete, I, I want the fans to see the cool stuff that I do. And, you know, as we travel the world and race these amazing cars and do cool things with our sponsors, you know, that's what I want those fans to see me represented by, not necessarily, you know, that I took my kids to dinner. Not that <laughs> taking my kids to dinner is, any less important to me, but it isn't necessarily, I don't want to shove that down my fans' throats every day. I just don't see a need for it. So, you know, for me, it's kind of a, a twofold thing. It's a, it's a bit, you know, that I, I like to keep my, my private life very private, but at the same time too, it's, I want to show the fans and entertain the fans with the awesome stuff that I do get to do as a race car driver. Yeah. Well, kind of, kind of going back to the beginning because I know this is this is these are some of the questions I don't know. I, I don't know how many times I've interviewed it, you at this point. I I'm sure at some point you're like, man, what borrowing a license plate from this guy like six or seven years ago? I never knew I'd be roped into so many damn things, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, seriously though, I mean, going back to the beginning, I mean, I I know. It's funny because, you know, you mentioned DC clothes and then before that, I know you had like eight ball and drawers. And uh, I laugh because I, I had a pair of drawer shorts and it was one of my favorite pairs of shorts ever. And I was so pissed when the things just finally fell apart. But, you know, kind of take me back to the beginning, because one thing I've always respected about you is you're self-built. It's not like you came from wealth and you bought some company and, you know, I mean, it was a ground up grind to, to where you're at, you know, and it was. So literally using, you know, your mind and, and some outside the box marketing techniques to kind of kind of get where you were, I mean, or where you are. I mean, how, how you know, how, how did DC and that whole movement, I mean, form and even before that, some of your previous brands? Ah, well, it's actually pretty simple. Like I grew up skateboarding and snowboarding and, 
you know, I, I had friends that were pros in, in those sports and, and like, I wanted to be a pro in one of those sports, but I just did it for a bunch of years and realized, man, I just didn't have the talent <laughs> to be pro. I could, I was pretty good at stuff, uh, but I never had that extra level that would, you know, that the pros have. And so at a certain point when I was, uh, I think 19 or 20, yeah, I think, yeah, 20 or 21, I just really came to the realization, like, hey, I love these sports, but it, it's never, the pro level is not achievable for me, so I need to find some other way to be involved. And so, uh, you know, Damon and I, you know, met in uh, a junior college, and we just clicked really well. Uh, sorry to say his full name, Damon Way. Um and we started off, you know, doing some small brands together. And I was literally screen printing T-shirts at this junior college in North San Diego. <laughs> uh, and and it just, we worked really hard at it. And it grew and grew and grew. And eventually we started DC. And, and that grew and grew and grew. And it really came from, you know, a lot of hard work and dedication, you know, and a bit of luck. Uh, and really just trying to use our talents you know, the best that we possibly could and working with good, smart people. And we were very lucky that Damon and I really got along exceptionally well with, you know, a lot of pro skateboarders and, and, uh, and they wanted to, to work with us and help us grow this thing. And it just, you know, was a, a really amazing experience. I, I'm very lucky to have uh, some natural talent with a few things and ended up being a, a very good industrial designer and a, and uh, um, like in basically an advertising director and or creative director, and uh, yeah, Damon and I just kind of worked our asses off and, and ended up with a, a really successful brand and eventually sold it. So I am very very appreciative that we were able to do that. That that industry is exceptionally hard to do that, and I'm proud that I grew up skateboarding and that and that I was able to take some of my talents and help create a brand that, that, you know, grew to basically 500 million in sales. Uh, that was after we sold it, but <laughs> you know, it was really cool, really cool being involved with something like that and, and seeing it really grow and flourish. Yeah. Was it, was it a little bittersweet when, uh, when you finally signed the final paperwork, you know, over to Quicksilver? I mean, was there a part of you that, you know, just felt, I mean, it, it was your baby, right? Uh, oh yeah, no, it was uh, it was incredible growing that thing and growing it to the size that we did. But but I mean, as far as businesses go and being able to have the opportunity to sell to a a Wall Street company, it's kind of like hitting the lottery. So we were <laughs> really really appreciative that we were able to, you know, uh, sell it and uh, you know take the chips off the table for all the hard work that we did. We stayed. Well, Damon and I stayed on with the brand for about four years afterwards to help continue with its growth and, and guidance, and and that was really cool. And uh, yeah, it's, but now it's kind of crazy to to see you know where it's gone and what they're doing with it. And people ask me, well, aren't you disappointed about this or that? And I, I tell them, no, I have no regrets. You know, it's not my company anymore. It's not been my company for over ten years now, and uh, you know, it's 
I would have done different things with it, but it is what it is. Yeah. Well, now you've got Hoonigan, and uh, I mean, I know, shoot, you know, Brian and, uh, you know, the guys over there, it's it's crazy because, you know, I've kind of I've been friends with them since the start. I mean, I remember, I mean, the first couple of T-shirts were sold, like, on a Facebook page, you know, that didn't have much of a following. And now just to see Hoonigan, I mean, you guys have well, I mean, millions of followers. And, uh, you know, and I, I mean, how's business over there? I just see the website and the growth. And, I you know, I get updates from Brian once in a while when we're talking and things like that. But it's been a while since we have. But, I mean, it just seems like things are growing hand over fist. I mean, I go into a, a mall and, you know, I, I'm in a Tilly's or wherever and I'm always looking and, you know, up pops Hoonigan shirts. I mean, to me, that's really cool to see a brand that literally has grown from scratch and nothing. And here, you know, here it is again. I mean, it's, you know, it's there and, uh, you know, I don't see an end in sight for sure. Uh, yeah, that's been really cool. I mean, we started Hoonigan because, you know, between Brian and I, we had so many creative ideas uh, to do with you know, my career in motorsports in general, and we just didn't really have an outlet for them. And there was only so much I could do with DC. The first, you know, five uh, Gymkhana videos were with DC. Uh, but at the end of the day, the, you know, those were big, you know, high-value productions that, you know, DC just was spending too much for for the size of the business they had with motorsports. You know, they're a skateboard brand, so it's yeah. kind of hard to spend that much money, you know, on motorsports. So, uh, you know, it's stuff like that that we just needed a better outlet to do things with, not only, you know, for videos and general marketing, things like that, but even just simple T-shirts, like the idea of like a tire flare shirt. Well, that would have been odd at D.C., so Hoonigan gives us the perfect outlet to make fun stuff like that and sell it and have it be a part of, you know, the brand of what we do and what surrounds kind of uh, what I do as a, as a race team. So it's been genuinely really fun. It's been growing quite well. Um, it kind of has a, a difficult place in uh, retail because there aren't, you know, like motorsport shops, like there are skateboard stores. So it is a bit difficult sometimes finding a home for it to be able to sell, but it has, you know, a really good following and continues to grow every year and really stoked to have it and hopefully continue to, to grow it on and on. Yeah. Well, kind of kind of switching gears here a bit. I know I uh, wanted to ask you, this goes back to, to kind of some marketing and, and stuff like that. I mean, because, you know, you'd mentioned earlier, you know, about design and having an eye for design. And I know, you know, you're a guy like I, I, I consider, you know, the baseline for everything. I mean, I look at my, you know, my brand, which is infinitely smaller than yours. But, you know, I, I look at spaces where Ken Block is in and, you know, it's like, you know, especially on social media. I mean, I get hit with, you know, what do we I mean, there's dozens of social media channels that pop up, you know, yearly, you know, but it's where do you invest your time and things like that. And I I've always said, like, I, I kind of watch what Ken Block does. And then, you know, it's like Ken Block goes to Snapchat. Well, I probably should have, you know, be using my 
my Snapchat. You know what I mean? It, it's things like that. Mm-hmm. But um, it, it just seems like going back to you know your design and, and things like that, even your liveries and uh, you know, and and then your ideas. I mean, your mind to me, it just it works different. I mean, back to things like you know DC Mountain Lab, and you know, and back with DC. I mean, here's this house on a mountain that you know became this almost like this sanctuary for snowboarders. You know, and and it seems like every time you know you take a step, there's most of the time there's a reason behind it. You know, you don't make rash decisions. Well, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, I guess I, I've always really enjoyed the creative side, you know, from skateboarding and snowboarding and, you know, growing DC, we tried to set the bar just extremely high for everything that we did um, on the marketing side. So, you know, trying to have the best athletes and have the best videos and the best print ads that go with all these athletes. And, you know, we had some of the best photographers in the industry working for us so that we had, you know, photos on demand that were at this extremely high level, you know, so taking all that experience and all, you know, all those ideas that we've worked on for years for skateboarding and snowboarding and then applying them to the motorsport um, is basically what I've been doing. So where somebody looks at some of the things that we've done and says, well, that Jim kind of video is completely out of the blue and completely unordinary. I look at it and think, well, to me, it's just like a skateboarder video part. We've just done it with a car, Yeah. you know, and, so the actual way that we put things together and the way that we, you know, find, you know, artists, you know, like the, like Fleet Pantone that did my livery for this year, stuff like that. Really, a lot of that just comes from what I've just done for years and years and years with DC. So in that way, I, I kind of feel bad sometimes when I look, when you realize sort of what my competition is up against when you have a, you know, a guy that basically brand directed a company like DC for 10 years. Uh, and, and now I'm doing that, basically that huge job, uh, along with a bunch of other very talented people that work for me, you know, for a small motorsports team. So uh, I think that the job that we do with Hoonigan and Hoonigan Racing is, is by far some of the best, you know, stuff done in the entire world of motorsports. And that's putting us up against, you know, the Ferrari Formula One team, but I take a lot of pride in the fact of what we're able to do with a small, very light, but very smart crew. Uh, and we just, you know, set the bar very high and, and work our asses off and we make exceptionally good stuff. So we take a, a huge amount of pride in that. Well, and back there a couple of minutes ago, you mentioned Jim Connor, you know, and, and that series. And I know I guess we should touch on the fact that uh, Jim Connor 9 uh, dropped yesterday. I know uh, right before uh, before we we decided to record, I checked, and I think you're a little over like 2.5 million views in 24 hours. I mean, to me, I mean, uh, you know, when you dropped that very first Jim Connor, I know it, was, it wasn't on accident, but it was one of those things where, I, I mean, you know, I look at how far this thing spiraled, and what are you, close to 400 million total views now? I mean, you, you had to have known it was going to be good, but never this good, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, when we made the first one, you know, I, I uh, we we knew it was good, and we enjoyed it, and, and but to, to us, it was, all stuff that I knew is possible with an all-wheel drive car, and I'd seen various things like it 
you know, before, you know, doing donuts and sliding around that sort of thing. But I, but that sort of thing had just never been packaged together that well and, and been presented to the general public. So, you know, I, I knew that it would have a decent impact, but I had no idea that it would make the impact that it had. And now almost 10 years later, we have, you know, 400 million views with this, this series. That's, that's just insane. I would have, if you would have told me that 10 years ago, I would have laughed at you, but <laughs> you know, it is what it is. We, we, we found a niche and I'm really happy that people have enjoyed watching them and we have gone out and now made nine videos of that. And nine is an insane number to go out and try and make nine creative projects at this level. Uh, but we've had success with every one of them. So I really appreciate that the fans like what uh, what we do with these things. And as long as they keep watching, we'll keep making them. So, yeah, it's been a fun ride. So I got, I got to say, Jim Connor 10, I mean, 10 is kind of a marquee number, right? Uh, I got to say, going, you know, we're rolling into Jim Connor 10, and I'm assuming that's going to be next year sometime. Um, as a fan of the series, I got to say, I, what I would love to see is go back to the original location that you filmed Jim Connor one and like do it all over again. I think it would be, be kind of just a, you know, a full circle type of thing for Jim Connor 10, but that's, that's just a, a fan talking here. Well, I love that idea. And I've actually had that idea. Unfortunately, El Toro airfield does not exist in the same form. It was when I did that first video. So they've taken down some of the buildings and there's just more, uh, more stuff there because there's like uh, RV storage on part of that now. Oh, and man. It, it's unfortunate that it just doesn't exist like it did because I would, I would actually love to do that exact idea, go back and do the original video almost like shot for shot, uh, but with different cars in yeah. each scene. You know, like each one of the cars that I've, I've used over the years, you know, for different parts of it. But Anyway, it's, it's just not possible because the place is just not the same as it was. But but believe me, Jim Connor 10, I, I've already actually been working on it for six months now. But, <laughs> you know, for me, it's a, it's an important number. And, and the fact that I've I've been doing this for a decade to be the just absolutely insane. So I really want to make this the craziest, most unique one. So... Yeah, I'm really happy the way nine came out, which literally was yesterday. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, looking forward to ten. Like, uh, I want to, you know, make it on a whole different level. So, uh, yeah, uh, it should be out probably sometime next year, probably more towards the end of next year. But you know, we've now put out two this year, eight and nine, both coming out this year, um, and then that's only because. Number eight was actually filmed last year, November last year, but it didn't come out till early part of this year. But yeah, th- actually this year I've done three because I, Jim kind of eight came out. I did the London Top Gear piece, you know, the tour piece with Matt LeBlanc, which yeah. is basically just an entire Jim Connor video, but for Top Gear. And then we just put out Jim Connor nine. And there's another, another one on an, on its way too, but a, slightly different version um, that'll be out in a month or two also. So that's four in one year, basically, which is super crazy. 
Uh, you need to package all this for like an iTunes, you know, thing. Just package every Jim Connor together and throw it up on iTunes. And I don't know. I think it'd be cool to have them all in one place and all in one file where I could just hit play on my iPad when I'm laying in bed and watch <laughs> everything roll through. You know? Um, yeah. Someday we'll someday we'll actually do some stuff like that. In the long run, when things kind of slow down for me, we're going to make sort of compilation stuff and documentaries and. You know, you know, like the top ten ideas and like my top ten favorite tricks, and so we'll kind of do that as as I start to slow down in my career. But that's still going to be a little bit. But as long as we can still keep producing good original content, then we'll keep doing that till till I run out of ideas, basically. Well, here's a question. How how did uh, I mean? You know, Jim Connor obviously scouting locations and uh, and then you know once you find a good location, going through the permitting process is insane. And then a lot of times you guys are adding to the mix. I mean, things like the Mustang, you know, and and uh, those builds. I mean, between the locations and these crazy builds, you've done the Mustang, the Escort. I mean, uh, I mean, wh- how, how does all that get put together? I mean, I know you've got a team of people, but you know, how do you go from I you know, from concept to, uh, you know, to actually, you know, having a physical, you know, location, you know, I guess, I guess approved and permitted and here we are. And, and, you know, these cars, I mean, you come up with crazy builds. I mean, how does that go from, you know, concept to implementation? Uh, a lot of it is just kind of what fits and when and what sponsors want and, and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, I, I, I've got a ton of ideas. I've got, concept drawings for four different vehicles right now and and we have things concepted out for all sorts of locations around the world so you know like this time like for this Gymkhana 9 uh, it was you know Ford and Hoonigan and Forza that were all the people behind it well Ford wanted the Focus RS okay brand new race car yep plug that in uh, Forza wanted uh Australia, because the new Horizons game is based in Australia. And, of course, Hoonigan wanted some really aggressive action done more simple. So we, you know, we take all those things and put it in a box and say, okay, well, great. You know, we got to get the focus. You know, when is the proper time frame to get the focus in Australia? You know, we work that out. And then uh, – Australia, of course, we start working with Australia to figure out where and how and what we can film. And then for the production on, on you know, the look and how we wanted everything to happen, well, that's when Brian starts working with his, his creative crew to figure out, you know, what they uh, want to produce and how they want to produce it. So all these things start to come together, but then we get wrenches thrown in like the Australian government doesn't like me and doesn't want me hooning on their streets <laughs> of Sydney. So basically we got banned from Australia. We weren't able to do what we wanted because basically the authorities in Sydney said, nope, we don't want you here. We won't let you go above the speed limit, even in permitted areas. And we basically don't want you here because it promotes hooning. So, <laughs> And I understand Australia does have a hooning problem, but you know they don't they don't stop you know films from being produced there you know that have murders in it because you know that people get murdered in Australia. To me, it's the same thing. So anyway, we had to find a new location, and we ended up in uh, Buffalo, New York. You know, mainly because they had some some very good 
pieces of you know old industry with the train station and old Ford plants and cool bridges and stuff. And so we uh, switched gears and ended up in Buffalo, New York, and were able to produce exactly what we wanted to produce. And that's how we ended up with Gymkhana 9. So I know I kind of kind of answered your question in a long, you know, long uh, form answer, but that's generally how it happens. We have, you know, there may be desires or needs like on my part or the team's part to do a particular thing, like, you know, like I wanted to do the Mustang. And then we partner then with the right sponsors that have similar goals, or they may have like a product launch a particular year or something like that. So, you know, for instance, this year, you know, Can-Am was launching uh, their new X3 and we have Toyo launching a new tire. So we work with them to figure out marketing and then we go out and, and do it with their backing. So it's a pretty fun process. It can, it can get frustrating and difficult at times, uh, but a lot of times we're able to, to figure out, you know, solutions and, and be able to do what we need to do. Yeah. Well, and I know I've been, you know, at HQ a few years ago. And I mean, how often are you guys in meetings? I mean, there's got, you guys have so many projects going on. And I mean, it's, it's got to be it's sometimes just daunting to be able to keep track of everything you've got in all different areas and corners of the world and projects going here and there and every which where. And uh, man, it's, uh, it's a full time job, man. Yeah. And, and it, it's, it's, um, it is insane the amount of work that we get done and the level of what we get done and the exposure that we get out of stuff. And it's really, I, I got to credit it to like a, a, a small group of really talented people, you know, from, from guys at, at Hinnigan, like Kurt and Brian to, you know, guys that work for me, like Matt and Ron, to, to a, an amazing team director, Gary Gonsi. It's like, Without these guys, we wouldn't be able to be so light on our feet and be able to get so much stuff done and also be able to adjust to issues as quick as possible. So it really, I, I really give a lot of credit to, you know, just being able to work with some incredibly talented, talented people. Yeah. Well, I gotta gotta ask, and I gotta I gotta ask a question for the stage rally fans. And I, I mean, I I know the reasoning why you're running World Rallycross, and you know, and I know deep down, if Ken Block could do anything in the world he wanted to, to be run full time in stage rally. Um, that being said, I know that uh, what is it, the HFHV is uh, is it currently for sale, or did it sell? I don't know. I know it was listed at one point, but uh, um, at some point in your career, as uh, you know, as we come full circle here, are we going to see you back on the stages in some type of vehicle? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm a stage rally driver at heart. Uh, you know, I have this great opportunity right now to race World Rallycross at the highest level with factory backing, so that's what I'm doing. Um, but at some point, I, I will come back and, and race uh, stage rally. But unfortunately... You know, stage rally uh, in the States isn't uh, maybe at the level that I would like to see that, which is a bit unfortunate. Um, and, I, and I mean that in a nice way. There's great events there, but the, there isn't, you know, a, a great amount of guys or, sorry, people running with the best cars at the highest level Uh so it's a bit unfortunate to see. I hope that stage rally in the states grows. I hope that uh, I hope that the competition cars grow. 
And I also hope that uh, the, the rallies in the states actually adopt some world-level classes like R5 that people can buy and race and all race at the same level. So, you know, one of the reasons why I've had the HFHV for sale is it's a very expensive one-off race car that's meant to race in the Rally America rules, but the Rally America rules are just so open that it, it becomes just a, a, a money war for trying to win the, the series. So I don't want to race in a series like that. I want to race in a series with some really good strict classes so we can all go out and race on a good level playing field. Um, and I hope that happens someday in Rally America so that we can go back and enjoy doing that. Um, otherwise, you know, for me, the WRC, I'd love to go back and race some WRC events, but, you know, the, it, they take such a big commitment of, you know, uh, you know t- changing your sleep time over and then a week's worth of event because of, you know, a couple of days of recce and shakedown and then three days of racing the event. It's a, it's a huge commitment compared to racing in, in rallycross, which is only two days. So it, it, sorry, but <laughs> your rally, your stage rally question is actually really complicated. Yeah. It's not a very easy answer. Um, the easiest answer I could tell you is I would love to go down and race New Zealand, race the national championship down there with like an R5 car, which fits into their regulations quite well. And, and some of the best roads in the world with a, a really well-run championship and a lot of great competitors and, and, you know, that's that's something I will genuinely do at some point down the road. Yeah. 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 Stage rally in the U.S., I, I think, uh, man, it's the easiest way to put it. Is I don't know at this point. There's so much good that happens, and then there's so much that uh, I, I don't know. It's like you said, though, we do have some of the most amazing stages. It's just getting, you know, getting everything put in order, and sometimes it uh, seems like it's, yeah, I don't know, wishful thinking. But uh yeah, moving on. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I know. Uh, I know. Obviously, you've kind of uh, you know been a voice of an industry. You know, whether it be with DC or now moving into things. I just kind of wanted to get your your feel on uh, because I know you still have the pulse. You still got friends there. I mean, just uh, you know, action sports, X Games as a whole. I mean, you know, we've seen this huge roller coaster. You know, up and down. You know, where it hits peaks and valleys. I mean, you know, where, where do you see the industry at right now? And and I know what Rob's done with Street League has been you know absolutely uh, just insane for for skateboarding but you know how, how do you see action sports in the industry and x games as a whole right now because i know x games is going through its own you know changes um but as a guy that's been there you know you've been on both the you know the athlete side with x games and you know and then the industry side with dc i mean where, where do you see us as a whole right now as far as action sports go well i, I think it's a really interesting time in action sports and i mean i, I you know i i came up you know with our businesses when you know skateboarding and snowboarding really thrived and grew and grew to a a really massive scale and you know i think x games was a a really big part of that and you know and then all the products from skateboarding snowboarding like basically going mass market into the malls because you know before you know before when i started with you know, DC, like those sort of retailers and those sort of products weren't necessarily available at mass market in the mall. So it's, it's been interesting for me from, you know, the early nineties through the, 
you know, mid to late 2000s to watch and see all that growth and see the success that the, the industry had, that the brands had, uh, and that the athletes have had. Um, but now, you know, kind of going on, you know, I don't know, what is it? You know, X Games has got to be into its like second decade, you know, like it, things have been around for a long time now. And, and I think that no matter what, no matter what sort of industry there is, uh, things can become stale. Things can uh, sort of get uh, oversold in the malls and all that sort of thing. And you're going to have these peaks and valleys. So it's kind of interesting to see because, you know, not only have we seen, you know, in, in our lifetime, like the rise of the X Games and the rise of these big athletes from skateboarding and snowboarding and motocross and all that, but we're also seeing in conjunction with that, the rise of the internet and social media, which has genuinely changed all sports. Yeah. Um, and so with that, you're seeing then lower numbers of attendance of live events. You know, you look in baseball stadiums nowadays, they, a lot of the teams can barely sell out half the stadium. And it's a really big change in how everyone absorbs media and how everyone, you know, follows you know, different sports because, you know, 20 years ago, if you wanted to watch skateboarding, you had to figure out what time that a TV station might have something on. And for a TV station to actually even broadcast anything skateboarding, it was very, very seldom. So then you had to go to the skate shop and buy the videos to watch. And consuming media was so much different 20 or 30 years ago. Well, today, the average kid picks up their their smartphone and says, I want to see, you know, Nigel Houston's part from whatever, you know, and it's right there on YouTube. It's like there's, and if, and if it doesn't instantly pop up because their service is crappy, well, they're mad, you know? <laughs> so it's, so the way that we consume media today is just so completely different that it's kind of affecting everything from the sport itself to how the pros get popular, how they're successful to what's happening to the brands or the brands, you know, some of these older brands, are they adapting and you have newer brands that are starting that are coming up with totally different sort of business models that are succeeding because they're understanding the current business. And yeah, it, the, the market today for all this stuff is really intriguing to me because it is so dynamically different than it was 20 years ago. And it's still changing year to year now. So I, I find it very kind of entertaining to watch all this stuff. And I watch it a bit from the distance. I don't, I don't deal with kind of the numbers of, you know, what it, these things entail nowadays. Um, but it's kind of just crazy to me to sit back and watch some things that I think would, would be really successful and hear some some of the struggle stories from some of the, you know, the older brands, including Quicksilver that's gone bankrupt, you know, a year ago. And it's really kind of crazy to me, but that's, you know, what the brands are having to deal with this new modern age. Yeah. It's funny. You mentioned that about the TV and and I, I've always said like, even my daughter, she's on YouTube watching just all kinds of random stuff, you know, and I've like kids nowadays can't appreciate I remember back in uh, the 80s, and I think the first time skateboarding I ever remember on TV was Nickelodeon had something called Skate TV. 
And uh, it was a short-lived yeah. series, like on Saturdays or something. But I remember as a kid, like I was always skating, skating. But that came on, and it was like it was like eleven o'clock in the morning on Saturdays, and I was so pissed if I missed that thirty-minute airing of it uh, because there was no DVR, there was no you just flat missed it, and they didn't do re-airs. <laughs> I just remember as a kid, I was so pissed because yeah. it was like the one time a week that I could watch skateboarding on TV was a thirty-minute window, and if I missed it, I was so pissed. And I'm like, kids can't appreciate. Uh, the way it used to be. I mean, I used to have one or two skate videos or snowboarding videos, and, man, those things got on replay to the point where that they didn't even work in the VCR anymore. And I'm like, man, kids nowadays, they just they don't, they don't know how easy they've got it, I guess. I don't want to sound like the old guy, you know, but <laughs> it's so different the way people consume content. Yeah, I agree. And, and the thing, too, is it, it, the, way, the funny thing how I even related directly to my own life was that I was such a rally fan when I was a kid, you know, that when I got my own car keys and was driving down roads, like I mimicked that driving style, like on twisty roads. But as I think back on it, I can barely think of how I even saw a rally. I mean, I grew up in Southern California. Like, so I guess I saw like, you know, ABC's wide world of sports or something showing Pikes Peak and like some highlights from Europe and, and, you know, and I, I looked at all the car magazines back then, and I'm sure I saw, you know, race coverage of WRC and stuff like that. But, it, like, it was so hard to see it at that time. You would have to buy some random VHS tape from Europe to be able to see rallies when I was a kid. You know, but today, like, literally, my son says, I want to see rally crashes. Boom. Like, two words in YouTube, and I have 50 videos. 50 videos that instantly come up that he will click through five of them and see stuff I would have dreamt about as a kid. And like that access to information and highlights and videos and sports and stuff like that to me is, is just such the coolest thing of our, of our modern age. And it's really just amazing to me, you know, what, what's available. And, and then also what the, these kids' perception is for the future. Like the bar is so high for some of these sports and things that people do because you're like, oh, I want to be a freestyle moto rider. Okay, well, you have to have to learn the basics, right? But then you open up YouTube and you see, you know, Josh Sheehan doing a double backflip with a variation in the middle of it. It's like, oh, my God. Like it's so insane, the level of what you're able to see. Yeah. Well, so. Anyway, it's going to be interesting to see kind of, you know, how things develop, you know, in the next couple of decades, not only how we consume media, but then how it affects the sports we watch. Because nowadays I turn on the Olympics and I'm like, how do people watch this? Like, this is so incredibly boring, most of it. I, I like, you know, certain sports in the Olympics, but there's so much of it, you know, these sports that have been around hundreds of years that, in today's standards are really strange to see them still showcased in a place where people can win a gold medal, but that's just the way that it's been for so long, but now things are changing. Yeah. Which is funny because, you know, I know skateboarding's coming to to the Olympics in four years in, in Japan, but you know, you've had something like BMX racing that, you know, I, I don't watch BMX racing, you know, normally I'll watch a street contest on TV, but 
in the Olympics, I would watch BMX racing, and that's something you've got to go to their website and watch on the live stream. They don't even put it on television. You know, and I'm like, <laughs> you're looking for the younger demographic, you know, like put that out there. Nobody wants to watch, you know, the three-meter springboard or the rhythmic gymnast. You know, to me, I'm just like, you know, you're, you're losing your, your audience here. You know, what are you, what are you going after, the 70-plus crowd, or do you want the under 35? You know, it's... I don't know. I think that's it's just a fight, you know. It's the old, I see a change, you know, like you said in media and everything else, and it's just it's going to be interesting, especially I think the next five years how how things you know come around. But uh, that being said, I mean, social media's growth has just become insane. I know, like you, I mean, you ever feel like there was a spot where you were, you know, you have I think I pulled and it was like just between Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, like over nine million followers. I mean, do you think at some point there was you were just right there at the right point, the right time when social media started? to take off and then you were able to capitalize on it with your unique content and things like that and really you know grow things yeah I, you know i i yes that you know we we definitely kind of had a formula with the stuff that we wanted to to show of my you know racing and personal life and um you know, once again, I, I'm a, I come from a background of marketing and I was a brand director. So being able to kind of direct content and fun photos and cool behind the scenes of a race car driver, that comes pretty easy for me. So we're able to produce, I think, content that a lot of the fans like to see. And at the end of the day, I know that the fans are what make me a, a, a sponsorable driver. So I... I try to constantly put up things that I think that the fans would like to see. So anyway, I think it's all those things kind of together that, that make this, you know, a, a popular formula. And I can't tell you how much I genuinely appreciate that I've got those fans. And, and now that we've, you know, got those fans, we try to continue to keep the level extremely high with, the content we put up, you know, from the Jim Connor videos to, you know, trips to Lake Powell to, you know, having the best photographers that shoot for us, you know, at the uh, World Rallycross races. So, yeah, you know, I, I don't believe me, not, that wasn't an easy process, <laughs> but, you know, it, it is pretty crazy. I mean, I just noticed this morning that we ticked over to 3.1 million followers on Instagram which is just absolutely insane to me when, a, you know, someone like uh, Sebastian Loeb or, or Petter Salberg, who are world champions, you know, don't have, you know, even 10% of that. So it's pretty wild to me, but it's something that I, I genuinely appreciate, the, the fans that like to follow me and what we do, and super stoked to, to have that uh, following, and we'll continue to try and make cool content for people to follow along. Yeah. All right. Before we let you go, two uh, two questions, kind of kind of quick hits. But uh, uh, on the social media front, obviously, you know, you guys kill it. I enjoy. You know, I, I've done interviews before where they, you know, they ask me, you know, who are who are your favorite people to follow on social media, and Ken Block is a number one. You know, I love seeing the unique content and where you're at and things like that. But you know, who you know, give me three people or three accounts that you enjoy following on social media. I mean, you like the content they're producing and things like that. I mean, I want to want to get in Ken Block's head. What are you looking at? social media wow that's a tough question uh hmm 
How about three brands yeah, that you like the direction they're doing? I mean, <laughs> oh, this is well, a tough one. I, I think I think I stumped Ken Block. Like, this is a first in five years. I, I have got you speechless here. Wow, this is. Uh... Well, well, the funny the funny thing about it though is like, like I I, I look at Facebook every day on my computer. Yeah. I look at Instagram every day on my phone, and then Snapchat I look at a couple times a day on my phone. Twitter, literally, I look at like maybe once a week. I I genuinely don't like Twitter that much. I think it's good to get information across and have conversations, but I I like really I like rich content, I yeah. like videos and photos and that sort of thing. So, but you know like. So there's there's just different things that I like in different areas, you know. Like on Instagram, I like some of the really funny, like meme style accounts, yeah. like Tank Sinatra, that that has a genuinely funny, sarcastic sense of humor and comes across really well in, in memes, you know. But you know, if there's if I'm looking at Facebook, I I like a different set of humorous things there, like you know Jerry of the day or whatever that yeah. has funny ski crashes you know but so it 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 comes from sort of different dynamics of things that i want to look at you know and somebody like larry chin you know and in motorsports or mike blayback and and skateboarding they're they're photographers that are extremely talented that are traveling the world and seeing cool things so i love to see their worlds uh through their eyes so those are you know, two guys that I that I like to follow. So yeah, they, that's a that's a very loaded question yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because because there's different things that I like to look at, and there's different ways that I, that I like to follow different people, and and not everyone is good at at all mediums. Like yeah. someone like you know Diplo, I like to follow on uh, on like Snapchat because I love to see the behind the scenes of in producing music or, or crazy playing crazy shows in, in Jerusalem or, or Berlin. So yeah, that's a, that's a tough question. Yeah. Well, here's uh here's another one. This one will, uh, I don't know, might be a little bit easier, but uh, four or five years out, where do we see Ken Block? I mean, are you, we going to see you on the U S ping pong team in, in Tokyo or are we going to see you still in a race car? Uh, no, you'll still see me in a race car. Uh, I, I'm, I, I will keep doing this as long as I have the talent to, to race at the highest level. And, and when I don't have that talent anymore, well, I'll slow down and, and, and do it in some other form that's, that's fun also. So uh, I, I'm extremely lucky that I've, I've got uh, amazing sponsors and, and I get to drive some of the most fun cars in the world, and I'm going to do it as long as I possibly can. So I, I work really hard to stay, stay healthy and, 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 and keep alert and keep in shape. And as long as I can keep reacting the way that I can and be able to compete with, you know, guys like Andreas, well, then I, I will keep doing it. So. Yeah, so I, I still see myself racing at a pretty high level in five years. Yeah, I yeah I, I see see what you've done and and how far you've gotten, and I, I'm excited for the next five years, man. I think uh, uh, I think it's going to be really interesting. I see the the program. I mean, how you, the level you've taken it to, and uh, I'm pretty excited to to see. I think uh, definitely the World Rallycross wins are going to come sooner uh, rather than later, and uh, pumped to pumped to follow along, my friend. 
Well, thanks very much. Well, thanks for having me on, and uh, good luck with the uh, with the program, and uh, talk to you sometime soon. All right, sounds good, Ken. Thanks. All right, thanks, Jim. Uh, thank you, buddy. Man, what an interview back in 2016 with Ken Block. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that one and uh, what is one of my all-time favorite interviews I've done. I put that one up with uh, with probably my Dave Mira interview. Uh, trying to think, man. I, I have done some uh, some bangers, but uh, that one definitely that one goes up there on uh, my Mount Rushmore of interviews. So uh, big thanks, uh, big, big thanks there to uh, Ken Block for uh, taking the opportunity back then. And, you know, he's continually support all my shows over the years. And, um, you know, big thanks to him. Uh, once again, head over to uh, Apple Podcasts, smash the subscribe button. Check us out on Spotify as well. Yep, we are over there on Spotify. Um, yeah, you know, get in on all the action with uh, our good friends and exclusive partners partner at betonline.ag don't forget use that promo code podcast one for your sign up bonus bet online they are your online sports book experts and geico don't forget they're offering an extra 15 percent on car motorcycle and rv policies visit geico.com for more and uh, mcguire's you know they got that ceramic uh, that hybrid ceramic solution for everyone for incredible water beating action and protection and durability beyond traditional wax it's ceramic made easy it's McGuire's. And uh, thanks to all of you for uh, continuing to tune in and uh, support us. And we'll be back next week, I believe, with uh, my good friend and uh, just an all-around badass on a dirt bike, um, Tara Geiger, one of the baddest women on the planet. Looking forward to that one. So, uh, yeah, hang tight. We've got a lot more to come here on Project Action on Podcast One. See you next time. Coming to Live by Live, Thursday, July 30th, Darius Rucker's Darius and Friends Virtual Concert, benefiting St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Catch an exclusive one-time-only performance by Darius Rucker live from the Grand Ole Opry stage, featuring guest appearances by Clint Black and Tracy Lawrence. All proceeds from the show benefit St. Jude, so get your tickets today at livexlive.com slash Darius, and tune in July 30th at 8 p.m. Eastern, only on Live by Live. Sports keep coming back. So does your chance to bet on them with our exclusive wagering partner, Bet Online. Major League Baseball is now in full swing, and the NBA has also begun. There's no shortage of ways to get in on the action. Bet Online has all the odds, futures, and props for you to bet on. Make sure you stay tuned as Bet Online sat down with ex athletes from the different professional sports leagues as they gave their opinions on what it will be like to play without any fans, health risks, and what a championship means for the 2020 season. NFL Hall of Famer Eddie George seven-time NBA champion Robert Ory, and longtime Seattle Mariner Harold Reynolds discuss all these topics in what BetOnline has called Fandemic. Visit BetOnline today to check out all the odds and up-to-date sports news. Don't forget to sign up and take advantage of all the Welcome Back to Sports bonuses. BetOnline, your online wagering experts. Visit our good friends and exclusive partner at Podcast One. BetOnline to take advantage of the best bonuses in the business. Sign up for a free account and make sure to use that promo code Podcast One for your sign-up bonus. Visit betonline.ag and don't forget that promo code Podcast One for your sign-up bonus. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts.